my wife, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> all right, well, we are um, trying to answer the question this semester, how is Jesus relevant to our lives? And um, what we're going to be um, trying to answer tonight is how is Jesus relevant to our busyness, to the way that we pack our schedules so full the way that we do. So um, this is a very relevant passage, and I'd like to invite you to turn your attention to Luke chapter 10, uh, beginning in verse 38, and we're going to read this and try and answer that question together, okay? All right. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. And she had a sister called Mary, who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. This is God's word for us tonight. I'd like for you to uh, pray with me as we look at this together, okay? So let's pray real quick. Father, as we uh, focus in on this uh, short but so um, just loaded passage, I pray that you would help us. uh, Holy Spirit, please come and please teach us and um, reveal what is true. And I pray that you would do so tonight. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the following story that I'm about to tell you is true, and, and uh, the way that I know it's true is because I, I found it on the internet. And um, no, this is actually true. This is on CNN. This was, this was a few years ago. Um, August 2007, here's what happened. Uh, a Japanese man is riding his motorcycle, and uh, you know, he's driving down the street, and he takes a, a sharp turn, and he kind of grazes up against some object he didn't really remember. Maybe it was a post uh, box, uh, you know, mailbox or, um, you know, some sort of object and keeps driving only to realize two miles down the road that his leg was severed and missing altogether. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, you're just, you're, you're walking along, you're going across campus to class, listening to your iPod and you're looking like, dude, my arm is missing. Like, where... <laughs> Where did I leave it, you know? Here's, here's the reason why I tell you that story, which is true. Google it. Um, the reason I tell you that is because sometimes we are so busy and so preoccupied and so focused and in such a hurry that when we finally stop, we realize that something is terribly wrong and has been terribly wrong for a very long time. And that's exactly what's going on in this story tonight. Here's kind of the basic setup to this story. Jesus and his disciples, which is kind of shorthand for Jesus and his whole crew, which would have been like 20 plus people, they roll into town and Martha, who is a friend of Jesus, opens her home up to them, which basically means she volunteers to feed them, which is a pretty intense undertaking if you think about it. I mean, just picture, put yourself in her shoes. Let's say it's 4.30, and all of a sudden you realize that you've got to be responsible for feeding 25 people, and they're going to show up in two hours, and they're going to be hungry. And going to Bojangles and getting a bucket of chicken is not an option. I mean, you would be busy and overwhelmed with all of the tasks involved. And so Martha, in this story, 
is very busy. But this is not just a story about her busyness. This is a story about our busyness as well. And so what I want to do is, is look at this passage, and, and you can follow along. I made a little outline on your sheet there. Um, I think this uncovers four things about the nature of our busyness. So here they are one at a time. We're going to look at the reality of our busyness, the uh, reason for our busyness, the result of our busyness, and then the remedy to it. Okay? So the reality, the reason, the result, the remedy. It all starts with R and all right here. Okay, so let's look at um, the reality of busyness. If you look at verse 40, we find out it says Martha was distracted by all of the preparations. Distracted means that she was worried, she was burdened, she was was overwhelmed, uh, she was anxious by everything that she had to do. Anybody identify with that? Where you just feel busy and overwhelmed with everything that you have to do? Yeah, of course. I mean, everybody in this room has been busy, is busy, right? But what I want to do is I want to look at that kind of from two different angles because there's two, if you think about it, there's two different forms of busyness. And so I just want to look at these one at a time kind of underneath this heading. The first is religious busyness. And you know about this, right? I mean, some of you, your entire weeks are swallowed with religious activity. Uh, I want to I read something to you from uh, this woman wrote this great book called Between Walden and the Whirlwind. She's a Christian author. And let me just read you this brief excerpt. I think you'll get where she's going with this. She says this. In the 20-some years I've been a Christian, I've received instruction on or challenged to read my Bible daily, pray without ceasing, do in-depth Bible study regularly, memorize scripture, meditate day and night, fellowship with other believers, always be ready to give an answer to the questioning unbeliever, give to missions unto the poor, work as unto the Lord, use my time judiciously, give thanks in all circumstances, serve the body, use my gifts to edify others, keep a clean house as a testimony, practice... Practice uh, gracious hospitality, submit to my husband, love and train my children, disciple other women, manage my finances as a good steward, involve myself in school and community activities, develop and maintain non-Christian friendships, stimulate my mind with careful reading, improve my health through diet and exercise, color coordinate my wardrobe, watch my posture, And she puts this in quotation marks, simplify my life by baking my own bread. (laughs) I mean, the pile of religious activity, it just feels crushing sometimes. It just feels overwhelming. And of course, different people uh, put different emphases sort of at the top of that pile. I mean, the evangelism people say, you know, the thing that you have to do above everything else is evangelism. And the prayer people say, you know, the thing that's above everything else is prayer. And, you know, the social justice people are saying, no, it's it's giving to the poor. I mean, everybody is sort of placing, uh, you know, different things there. But um, the phrase in verse 40, when it says all the preparations, that's the same word in the original language that is elsewhere translated in the New Testament as the word ministry. She is serving Jesus and essentially um, doing ministry. And she's the quintessential character in this story that doesn't get the gospel. She doesn't understand the gospel and yet she's doing ministry. That doesn't make sense, does it? But I think if you think about it, 
It kind of does, because there's a million examples of this. Martin Luther, you know, Protestant reformer Martin Luther, and John Wesley were both converted. They were both saved while they were in full-time vocational ministry. Martin Luther was a priest. John Wesley was on a mission trip. So some of you coming to Chicago may get converted while you're there. Actually, there's a, there's a really fascinating example of this. When, when you're in seminary, um, they, you have to do these preaching classes, which means you, you stand up in front of like your class of 15 or 20 students and preach to them. It's most, the most awkward thing ever, especially because they videotape you doing it and then play it on a screen after you're done so you can see how your hands are moving the whole time. <laughs> Obviously, it didn't work for me, but um, it's like the most horrific thing ever. But when I was in seminary, I heard this story that a few years before I got there, there was a student uh, in kind of preparing to go into the ministry who was sitting in one of those classes while his fellow classmate was preaching. And he heard the gospel for the first time and understood it and was converted and became a Christian in seminary, training to be a minister. I mean, this is not really odd when you think about it. I mean, you can be very religiously busy and totally miss it. I mean, Martha is a picture of that. So that's sort of religious busyness. But of course, the other side of it, sort of the other side of the coin is non-religious busyness. And some of y'all know exactly what that is like with all of the demands of school alone with papers and projects and lab reports and everything that's involved with school. And then you've got work and you've got exercise, intramurals, social activity, updating your status, responding to emails, responding to voicemails. I mean, on and on and on. And we go and we go and we go and we do not stop. There's tons of research out there right now, and I'm sure maybe you've heard it or some of it are familiar with it, about all the research that's going on about workaholism. I read this article, and it said that Americans are now at the, America is at the top of the list for the most amount of hours worked, the the most amount of vacation that is diminished, and the most amount of stress-related diseases. Uh, America is, uh, this article that I read said that 12% of of working Americans took no vacation the year that the survey was done. 12% took no vacation because they were working too much. That was written in, that, that article was in 2003. I mean, imagine what it would be in 2011, right? This other article that I read kind of in preparation for this passage zeroed in on the life of a lawyer in Seattle. And it said that he gets by on uh, four to six hours of sleep a night, sometimes one hour of sleep a night if he's like preparing for a trial. And let me just read this to you. This is from this particular uh, article. It says that this lawyer is accessible for clients from 4 a.m. to midnight, seven days a week via cell phone, air phone, whatever that is, internet, or his cherished Blackberry attached to his hip. He works on family vacations, and it isn't a rare thing for him to check his email from his phone while at the dinner table. Now, for some of you, that just described your dad. And for some of you, that's describing what you're training to be. What I want you to see is regardless of whether you consider yourself religious or not, we are not at ease with not doing. We are only at ease when we are doing, when we are working, when we are busy. For for some of you, you actually feel guilty if you're not doing something. You feel guilty. And if you stop, 
and are not doing anything for like three minutes, it feels like three hours. And you start getting restless and antsy, and then you start checking your phone, check, you know, checking your email. I got to Facebook somebody. I got to find somebody to hang out with. You know what I mean? Where it feels like we are not at ease with not doing. But here's what I want you to see. Um, everybody is busy, and of course you're like, well, yeah, that's a given. But the interesting thing is the reason behind it. And what I want you to see next is it does not matter if you are religious and busy or non-religious and busy. They are both byproducts of the same condition. So let's look at this next. What, what is the reason behind all of our busyness? Why are we working so much? Well, here's the reason. Look, look at Martha again. She's obviously very busy and clearly overwhelmed with all of the dinner preparations that she has to get ready. And, and so the question is, where is this pressure coming from? I mean, is the pressure coming from outside of her? You know, like, is Jesus walking in and he's like, dude, is hungry. Give me some chicken wings now. No, right? I mean, it's like the pressure is not coming from outside of her. The pressure is coming from within her. Look at Jesus' response to her in verse 41. It's, it's very interesting. He says, Martha, 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 you are, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. Here's what he's saying. He says, look, you are worried about a lot of things. In fact, you care about this stuff. You care about all of this stuff too much. In fact, this whole dinner is not really about the food and the table setting and the drinks. This dinner is really about you. This, is, has, this has something to do with your soul. And the fact is, is that you need this. That's why he contrasts the two different needs. He says, look, you are worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. You need this to be perfect. Here's what's going on. She is dependent upon her achievement for her well-being. She is looking to this, to getting this dinner thing perfect in order to, to, to in some sense, find her identity, to find her happiness. She, she knows that she will be somebody if this activity that she's doing will, will be perfect, will, will come out okay. And, and here's the connection that you have to see. There is this deep connection between who you are and what you do. And, and the question of who you are is enormous, meaning am I okay, am I somebody, am I significant? And if that question is unsettled, if that question is, is um, uh, fragile, then the byproduct of that is that you are going to overwork because you are going to look to your performance, you're going to look to your achievement, you're going to look to your accomplishments as a way to answer that deeper identity question of I will know that I am somebody by looking at what I've done. Right? That, I mean, you have to see this connection. When, when your identity is, is so fragile, it just spins itself out into ceaseless work. And here's what really sucks about that, is that the work is never finished. Right? There's always something to do. There's always somebody to beat. There's always somebody to, to one-up. The work is constantly coming at you. It never stops. And so if you are looking to that as the thing to answer that deep identity question, you are just left spinning like a hamster on a wheel where you're just running and charging, thinking that you're getting somewhere and you're not. You're just running in place. There is a um, great documentary called King of Kong. You have to see it. 
It zeroes in on this guy named Billy Mitchell, who in the early 1980s got the world record. He, he, he got the world record for the um, amount of points scored in the old arcade game Donkey Kong, like the upright, like old school one button like joystick game. He got the world record, like early 80s. 25 years later, this other guy comes on the scene named Steve Weeby. <laughs> Love that name. But Steve Weeby comes on and he sets out to beat this guy's record in Donkey Kong. And so what he does, I mean, I think he was unemployed. He had to have been with the amount of time. But for hours and hours, he trained, meaning played Donkey Kong. He was training, he was, he was strategizing, he was making charts about all of the different levels. And so he goes to this like um, tournament where they're like official judges. I mean, this is like a big, a competitive arcade game un, like subculture I had no idea about. And he goes to this tournament and competes and after hours of gameplay, beats the score. And he's like, the, he's now the world record champion. But of course... Billy Mitchell emerges from the dark and comes out and he sets out to reclaim his title and they start going back and forth and there's controversy and intrigue involved and like uh, Steve Wiebe's uh, children are always coming up to him and like they're crying and sobbing and trying to persuade him to stop playing and he can't. He can't stop playing and he's, he's playing freaking Donkey Kong. <laughs> Here's what I want you to see. There's a few quotes from this movie that are just priceless. Steve Wiebe's daughter comes to him one time and she says this. She says, I never knew that the Guinness World Record book was, was so, I never knew it was so important. And he sort of sheepishly says, yeah, I guess a lot of people, a lot of people read that book. And then she says this looking directly at her father. Some people sort of ruin their lives to be in there. Why would he ruin his life? Why would he you know, <laughs> neglect his family for this? Well, there's this other line from the other guy, Billy Mitchell, which the, the, you have to see the movie just for the things that come out of this dude's mouth. It's amazing. Here's what he says. He says, competitive gaming... When you want to attach your name to a world record, when you want your name written into history, you have to pay the price. But I think, while that's weird, because it's about Donkey Kong, you have to see that he he nails it. He puts his finger on it. He says, what we are after is trying to put our name into history. We are trying to prove that we are significant. And, and that is the reason, that is the, that is the heart's reason for overworking. It's because it is connected to that. I will know that I am somebody. I will know that I am significant. I will know that I've made an etch in, his, in the history books when I look at my accomplishments, when I look at my achievements. And until I get that... I'm going to be restless. And of course, St. Augustine, who's one of the early church fathers, he said, he's kind of summarized this whole thing, that your heart, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in God. There is that deep interior restlessness that if that question is not settled, if you do not know that you are okay deep down, if you do not know that you are significant deep down, then that spins itself out into a lot of work and it's exhausting because the work is never finished.
But I know some of you are going, but Matt, I like being busy. I don't, I mean, I, f- I feel like I'm more productive when I got a lot going on. So what I want to do next is, is I want to briefly just look at the result of what this sort of lifestyle leads you to. So let's just look at this, this third thing. I promise I'll be shorter. Uh, what is the result of this driven lifestyle that is fueled by this need to validate your existence? Now, I've been focusing all about Martha, but there's another character in the story. Her name is Mary. It's Martha's sister. It's probably her younger sister. Look at verse um, 39. Let's read it together. Verse 39, it says, She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. She's just sitting there chilling out. I mean, she's not so much interested in serving Jesus as she is just wanting to be with him and listen to what he has to say. And so, of course, if you put yourself in the position of Martha, I mean, she's freaking out because she's got a million things to do. And there's like my little sister sitting there like a spoiled little brat. It's like, what, won't you help me? You know, like you can kind of imagine what's going on with her, right? But, of course, there's more going on underneath the surface with Mary. We've realized this is about her identity. She's trying to answer big ultimate questions by her performance, by her uh, accomplishments. But verse uh, 40 says this. It says that she came to him. Which, in the original language, again, th- there's just a subtle nuance here that's very important. I mean, you, you, we, couldn't, we wouldn't pick it up just by reading it. This is basically used, this, uh, this phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible to describe a very undesirable event that kind of comes spontaneously. So, like, elsewhere in the Bible, it says, like, sudden destruction will come upon you. Or, you know, Jesus said, um, you know, judgment day will come upon you like a thief in the night. And so what's going on is that she's literally storming up to Jesus in sort of this confrontational way. And what she does is she just calls Jesus out to his face. She says, don't you care? And then she throws her sister under the bus by saying, my sister has left me to serve alone. I mean, she's lashing out at people. You see how irritable she is? You see how touchy she is, how bossy she is? You will know that this is what is going on in your life, that you are trying to validate your existence. You, you are trying to affirm up your identity through your accomplishments when you are able to see how, what you do when you get stressed out, how touchy and irritable you become. And, and so here are a couple of just tests for you that, that you will know that you are trying to validate your existence through your work when you experience um, inordinate anger and frustration when you get blocked from the things that you wanted. You know, like, like you know that you um, wanted that particular grade and you didn't get it and you felt like you deserved better. And you experience just this eruption of anger and frustration, like over the top. Or, uh, you know, you didn't get into this group or to that group, like you didn't get into ambassadors or you didn't get into this particular leadership program or whatever. And you don't just experience sadness and frustration and disappointment, which would all be normal, but you experience over-the-top sadness and anger, and, and it eats at you, and you can't sleep at night, you can't stop thinking about it. You lash out at other people, or you just lash out at yourself. I mean, you ever done that? Where you, just, you, you just kind of beat yourself up? Ah, stupid idiot, you know? You, you know that that's what's going on when you lash out at other people, when you lash out at yourself, or... I mean, when you lash out at God himself. I mean, look at what Martha does, right? I mean, at the end of this passage, she starts bossing Jesus around. She says, um, uh, tell her to help me. 
She's looking at God and saying, tell, tell her to help me. I mean, you ever done that? Where something happens, you failed at something, you didn't get what you wanted, and you just get so mad at God. And you're like, dude, I don't even know if you exist anymore. You've got to fix this. Come, like, how could you let this thing happen? You know what I'm saying? When you lash out, and um, you lash out at your friends, you lash out at God, you lash out at yourself. When you are trying to settle the identity question through your work, through your performance, through your accomplishments, this is the result. Uh, you're bossy, um, you're uh, a control freak, you're touchy, you're rude, you, you, you lash out at people, you're, you're irritable. And that's an ugly way to live. That is not the way to live. But of course the question is, okay, then what's the remedy? How do we fix this problem that we all seem to have? I mean, we've looked at the reality. We, we've, we've you know, looked at the reason behind it. We're all trying to validate our existence, kind of prove to ourselves, to everybody else, and to God that we are somebody. That's the reason. And the result of that is that we just become these exhausted, anxious, overworked, you know, control freaks. So what is the remedy? And know the remedy to busyness is not laziness. It's not just sit in a corner and be with Jesus and everything's great, right? <laughs> What does Jesus say to Martha when she kind of freaks out on him? Well, again, he says, Martha, Martha. And the reason I think he repeats her name twice is I think he's being very unbelievably compassionate with her. He's being very gentle and yet being very firm to get her attention and say, look, 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 settle down. And then what he says uh, right after that is he says, you are worried and upset about many things. You need a lot of things right now, but only one thing is needed. Only one. And Mary has chosen what is better, meaning she has chosen me. She's just wanted, she just wants to be with me and listen to what I have to say. She has chosen what is better. And then he says this, and this won't be taken away from her. Now, I was thinking about that. Why did he tack on that little phrase at the end? Why didn't he just say, Mary has chosen what is better, period? You know what I think he's alluding to when he says, this will not be taken away from her? I think he is alluding to her security and her stability. Uh, I mean, what she has is so settled and so secure, it will, it will not be taken away from her. I mean, look at how content she is. I mean, she doesn't have this deep restlessness in her soul where she has to prove herself to Jesus and to her friends and to everybody else. She has this stillness about her that is born out of this interior invincible security that she has. I mean, she, her, the identity question for her is settled. And so as a result, she doesn't have to work. She can just sort of be. But the question is, how do we get that? How do we get what she has, that invincible security? Well, there's this pastor in Greenville, South Carolina, by the name of Brian Habig. He used to be the RUF campus minister at Vanderbilt. And I heard him years ago speak on this passage at the RUF summer conference, which we'll talk more about when it gets closer to summer. But he was teaching on this passage, and he made an observation that I don't think I would have ever have picked up on, but it was unbelievably brilliant. Look at um, uh, verse 38, the very first thing. It says, this is how the passage opens up. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, where? I mean, it doesn't tell you. It doesn't tell you where they're going. Unless you looked at the chapter before. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, let me just read it to you real quick. It says, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out 
for Jerusalem. And from that verse on, through the rest of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is making this beeline towards Jerusalem. So he is on his way to Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? To be killed on a cross. Why is he being killed on a cross? For your doing and for my doing, for our activities. When you begin to see that Jesus was killed because of what we do, both our sin and our accomplishments and our achievements, when you begin to see that he was killed because of what we do, this changes the way that you think about what you do because now you realize, I can no longer stand. I can no longer rest upon my work. I can no longer rest upon my doing. It is shaky and dangerous ground. I can only rest upon his work, what he has done. Let me try to illustrate this this way. If you were at Cross Point Church this Sunday, this is going to sound familiar. But for the rest of you, um, here it is. You remember the movie, The Dark Knight? Batman? I was expecting a, a more enthusiastic response. There you go. Great movie. Here's the basic plot line of that movie, if you remember. They're, uh, Gotham City, the context for the story, is being ridden with crime. And um, one of the city officials named Harvey Dent kind of cleans up the streets and he puts all these bad guys in jail. But it was all kind of based off of his reputation. Like if he fell, if he became corrupt, then uh, all of these bad guys would kind of be released again. And so all this emphasis is on this guy remaining straight. And so Batman's, you know, out doing his thing, fighting the Joker and everything. And of course, Harvey Dent falls. He becomes Two-Face. Gets his face all burnt up. He has two faces, hence the name. And he, he's got this gun and he goes around like shooting and killing everybody. And so at the end of the movie, Batman and Harvey Dent slash Two-Face get in this fight. And of course, because it's a Batman movie, Batman wins. Spoiler alert, sorry. And um, so Harvey Dent slash Two-Face is dead. And of course, uh, as the police are descending on this scene to figure out what has just happened... Batman makes this quick decision and he starts running and he's sprinting into the night and the police see him and start chasing after him and they're shooting him and you're like, what, what is going on? Why is Batman running? Why, why are the police chasing him? And there's actually this kid who sees this whole thing you know, transpire and he looks at his dad and says, dad, why are they chasing Batman? He, he didn't do anything wrong. And actually, as that montage is happening and Batman's kind of slowly running through the night like the police are chasing after him, there's this other scene going on where Harvey Dent, Two-Face, his face is restored and there's posters of him all over Gotham City. And everybody is honoring him for his noble death and all of his heroic deeds for putting away the Joker and kind of cleaning up the streets. And you're like, what is going on? Why are they treating the hero like a criminal And why are they treating the criminal like a hero? It's because Batman has substituted himself for Two-Face. Batman is receiving all of the blame for Two-Face's crimes. And and Two-Face is receiving all of the credit for Batman's heroic deeds. And that is the gospel. That's exactly what happens. When you hook into this thing by faith, That's exactly what happens. God looks to you and he credits you with all of the accomplishments of Jesus' work. And he puts on Jesus all of the blame of your work. And there's this transfer that happens. And so when that happens, now the king of the universe can...
can look at you and say, I accept you. I approve of you. That question of who you are now is settled. It is done. I mean, what does Jesus say when he is on the cross? It is finished. All the work that needs to be done has been done for you. And when you have him, you no longer need to prove yourself to yourself or to your friends or to God anymore. That question is settled and you can finally stop and rest. But if you are trying to answer that question of who you are through your work, you will never be able to stop. You'll never be able to. Because the, the second that you do, you lose your very identity. So you think. You lose it all. But if you have Jesus, and he has answered that question for you, and you have that invincible stability and security, you don't have to spin your wheels any longer. I, I want to close here with, with an exhortation and an encouragement. Okay? Here's my exhortation to you. Sometime this week, take 30 minutes and be by yourself. Go away, go to the library, go to a coffee shop, go out on the parkway. Just be by yourself, not with friends. Maybe bring your Bible, but don't bring a laptop, don't bring your iPhone, you don't, don't bring your uh, iPod or anything. Just be with Jesus. And when you start getting antsy after four minutes, Ask yourself, why do I have to feel like I have to do something right now? Why is this so hard? E- even if you're not somebody that, I, that would identify yourself as a Christian, I still encourage you to do this. And as you go out and, and you're by yourself, and it may be weird for you to be with Jesus, so I understand. So just go out and be by yourself. And then ask yourself the same question. Why do I have to be doing something right now? And maybe even invite God into that conversation for the first time. Maybe even explore and think about what God has to say about why it is that you're so antsy right then and right there. But take some time this week and be alone with him for 30 minutes. That's my exhortation. Here's my encouragement. Jesus says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Consider that an invitation. Let me pray. Father, I pray that you would give us the eyes to see um, what you have done for us, Give us the faith to link into that so that we do not have to spin our wheels anymore to try and validate our existence, but that we would see what your work has done for us, that we would be able to stop, that we would be able to rest, and in an ironic way, actually be uh, empowered to do our work better. Give us faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.